Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as Pastor Kevin Dibley brings us a series, Gospel Friendships, Finding Joy and Resilience Through Deeply Devoted, Christ-Centered Friendships. One of the greatest gifts of the Christian life is the gift of gospel friendship. We were not made to live this life alone and being faithful to Christ in a world of sin, hardship, and disappointment is challenging to say the least. The Apostle Paul writes to the Church of Philippi to express his great joy in their deep friendship and sacrificial partnership in his life and ministry. He writes them not only to thank them, but also to encourage them to not let their dedication to one another waver. One of the great joys of being a Christian is having other Christians in your corner helping you live for and to love Christ supremely. During this study, we're going to look at Paul's friendship letter to the Philippians and we're going to learn what real gospel friendships look like. Do you want a good gospel friend? Are you willing to be one? Let's worship together. Amen, amen. So on that hope, on that note, let's take our Bibles and go to Philippians. Thanks, worship team, for leading us and helping us, taking us down to our knees before a holy God and up to the heights of our risen and reigning Savior. Praise the Lord. Well, we are um, in our second Sunday in a study of Philippians, and my desire in walking through Philippians particularly is to hit one particular theme and one particular note on a rich text of Scripture, and that is the joy of gospel friendships. And if you have not read your way through Philippians, I encourage you to do that. And as you make your way through Philippians, try to take note of Paul's relationship with this particular group of believers. And as you do so, listen to his language. Because there are not too many letters, maybe in the Corinthian letters, but there are not too many letters where we get Paul's full-out affections for a group of believers being articulated with such um, great emotion and great clarity. And so, you know, the, the thing that we see in Paul's relationship with the Philippian church is that he writes this while he's in prison. And so you have the context of his imprisonment, you have the depth of his relationship, and then, you know, the, the, the strong note of Philippians is this note on joy. So here is Paul in prison, and he's writing to believers who he has deeply en- en- enmeshed himself in the gospel ministry, and he is rejoicing with them, even though there are still numerous trials and difficulties. And uh, I, I'm, I'm saying this, for, or studying this for a couple of reasons, and Gabe even prayed a little bit about it today, and uh, um, when he invited us just to confess, when he, he didn't pray, but he led us in confession, that one of the things that can happen for believers is that we can find the cynicism of the culture becoming the cynicism of our hearts. Isn't that true? that we can find in our own lives that we begin to be suspicious of everything that's going on around us. And that can be true because of the brokenness and struggles of the church. And uh, what's remarkable about the Apostle Paul, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember, I showed you that there were four heartbreaking things, four heartbreaking relationships that are clearly spelled out in Philippians 
that could be justification for Paul's pessimism or cynicism, but you don't get it. And he doesn't give you permission to take it. And he shows us the way through it. And I just want to say that it's really easy when we hear bad news all the time, when we see the worst of humanity, and then we see it not just in the culture at large, but amongst Christians. Christians can be toxic. Christians can be cynical. Christians can be discouraging. We can be all those things. Not pointing the fingers out. We can experience that. Philippians is remarkable because the Apostle Paul is effusive in his love for the Philippian Christians, and he is incredibly hopeful in the gospel. And those things aren't separated. They are tightly wound together. And so we're going to look at that a little further by looking at the prayer that Paul prays today uh, in the text that we're going to read today in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, down to 11. So what I want you to see as I read this is that Paul's initial words in verse 3 and following set the tone for the whole letter. So this is just not a commonplace expression where he's just giving a greeting and going through the motions. Let me remind you that all scriptures God breathed and so there is nothing that is led by God that is not intentional and purposeful. So as we hear this text of scripture we need to hear both that God is directing Paul to say this but also that Paul possesses the very things he's praying. So this is not Paul in the spirit disconnected to Paul in ministry. This is Paul in ministry. And in, in the Spirit, in the Gospel, praying a real prayer. And as he prays a real prayer, there's some real help for you and I. So the battle for you and I is to see, to see the plan and purpose of God and to see the people of God in his Gospel purpose the way that we are taught to here in, the, in Philippians and in this letter, because sometimes it's hard to see, isn't it? Isn't it hard to see through the mud and the mire, the fog, uh, the haze, <laughs> uh, the urban pollution of sin that's in our hearts, you know? I, I, I remember being in uh, Southern California and being a pastoring up in Northern Canada where you don't get much smog, <laughs> And I remember being about an hour out of L.A. looking through a valley, that, and you just thought, man, I'm not sure I'd want to go into the city today. <laughs> that's not gray, that's orange-gray dark, you know, and, and, you, and that's one of those interesting maps you've seen if you, if you see what this COVID shutdown has done to pollution in Beijing and other places around the world. They show these satellite pictures of how it's cleared off. Well, may the, may the smog of cynicism be cleared off by the gospel in your heart today as we read and, and pray this. So let's, let's look at this prayer and then let's just spend a few moments thinking about this together. Paul says, I thank my God occasionally for you. Oh, wait a minute. Let me backtrack and read the word as it's written. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Isn't that a mouthful? In the Greek, the Apostle Paul is actually using a repeated sound, pa, 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 
The, the, the words are all the same. So you don't hear it in English. If you heard it in Greek, you would realize he's tapping us on the chest with his prayer. As he's doing this, he's emphatically driving home the depth of his joy over them every time he prays for all of them with all joy in every prayer. You have any praying like that before we read a moment further? Do you want to pray like this? Do you pray like this? When's the last time you said this? Because that's what we're going after today. We're going after this kind of heart, this kind of insight, this kind of prayer. So look at verse 5. How does he pray? This way, with this joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Pause. Is that a cynical prayer? Is that your perspective towards the church? Any church? Or the church at large? That's his prayer. Now, is it appropriate? Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Whose affection? Christ's affection. I yearn for you. God is my... Why would Paul write, God is my witness? Is he not seeking to remove your cynicism? (laughs) Is he not seeking to remove any hesitation from you of his sincerity? God knows I'm not lying to you. This is Paul pouring out what's in his heart. Like we sang of the woman who broke the alabaster. She poured out her affection towards Jesus, broke it. He is pouring out his affection to the Lord in prayer for the Philippian believers. Verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love... So you hear Paul's love? Now he's praying for your love, that it would what? That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's good. Because you could say to Paul, naivety is better than knowledge, (laughs) right? The more I know, the less I love. The more I see, the harder it is not to be cynical. No, the problem we have is we don't see it right. So I want your love to abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What is Christ's will? What is Christ doing to the glory and praise of who? God. 
So this is to the glory and praise of God. So that's his prayer. Isn't that a powerful prayer? I can tell you, I could have done my whole summer, summer series on this, and maybe it'll take me all summer to finish today. No, I'll try to move along. But let me at least give you a couple of insights and principles from this text. I have a quote here from Gerald Hawthorne in his commentary on Philippians, where he's actually quoting another scholar and adapting it a little bit. But he describes Paul's joy. He says, joy is a defiant nevertheless. I love that line. Joy is a defiant nevertheless. It's like in the face of everything that's going wrong, Paul's in prison. In everything that's gone wrong in terms of people speaking against Paul, as we saw last week, in order to make him miserable in prison, right? In the competitive spirit, people who are going against the church and bringing in legalism, people who are um, turning away from eternal things and having their hearts set on earthly things, and it brings him tears. Chapter 4, close Christian friends squabbling with one another. In all of that, nevertheless, Paul is, as Hawthorne says, using joy as a defiant, nevertheless, even though it's hard, even though I'm in prison, even though it hurts, even though there's difficulties, even though there's hardships, guess what? God is on the throne. There is a reason for joy and praise. And I want to ask the question, how do you get that? Do you want it? Do you want that perspective? Now, all I want you to see as we're working our way through in Philippians is that what Paul is able to see in all of this is the unrelenting sovereign hand of God advancing the cause of his kingdom through the power of the gospel. And the Philippian church is evidence number one in the praying of Paul. Right? You're in court. Your honor. I want to bring some evidence to you. Evidence against all hope. Evidence against everything the accuser has said. Evidence that stands in stark contradiction to what you're thinking, Your Honor. <laughs> you know, yes, you can say, here is incontrovertible controvertible evidence that should, that should justify joy in my heart and hope and deep love for the people of God. Paul, you're crazy to love the church. No, you're crazy not to love the church. Because the church is the instrument by which God is establishing his kingdom through Christ in the world. That's what he sees. I had shared with Waterbrook a little while ago, but um, there was a story that broke just in the last decade. Um, Eric Ramsey with Tom Cox World Ministries had gone over to an area in the, the Congo uh, because they had heard of some missionary work done by actually, a, he was originally a Canadian doctor who ended up going over into the Congo and into a remote area in 1912 um, to, to uh, minister the gospel. Uh, his name was Dr. William Leslie. They had heard about his ministry, but it was a remote tribal area. They hadn't gone there. And Dr. Leslie had left the Congo. He, he ministered there for 17 years in the Congo and then he left and moved to America. And when he moved to America, 
he had not seen any success in the gospel ministry. He left believing he had failed. He lived out his his life believing that all his efforts had been poured out in vain. And so Eric Ramsey and others flew over there in 2010. They took a Cessna with MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship. They went to Kinshasa, then to Vanga, then they took, for, which was a two-and-a-half-hour flight, and then they took uh, backpacks, they, they canoed in, and then they took backpacks another 10 miles into the jungle. And they knew that something, they had heard ministry up there, but they didn't know if there had any effect. When he got there, they discovered that there were multiple villages that had self-reproducing churches. Self-reproducing churches. The churches actually had kind of choirs that would go back between one another's villages and, and, and sing and have singing competitions. They found a building there which it was like a, a stone cathedral that actually sat, sat a thousand believers. Nobody knew it was there. Now, it reminds me of characters in the Bible. Remember Elijah <laughs> going up and saying to God, I'm the only one left. There's nobody here but me. Right? I'm the only one. What did God have to show him? Oh, you know, there's two more. There's three more, seven more, ten more? Seven thousand more. Do you understand that sometimes it's hard to see? And how do you see what the Lord is doing? Well, sometimes He doesn't show you in your lifetime, but except for in the gospel. And, and that's why you and I need to read the stories of history and we need to read the stories of Scripture because the definition, the explanation of the gospel teaches us you know, we have, we, have a, we have a definition of the gospel, which is that Christ died for our sins. My little granddaughter, um, you know, last week or, or two weeks ago, little Lily, who's two years old, um, was really upset because they were having family devotions and they do scripture memory and, and, and Kathy had Corey, who's five, do her scripture memory and it was a little longer that day and they got talking about it and then they moved on and forgot Lily and about, you know... Ten minutes into it, Lily is inconsolable. <laughs> then they look at Lily and say, Lil-, and then they realize Lily wants to say her part. Well, all Lily says it too at this point in time is, Christ died for our sins. And they teach her the gospel. First thing she needs to get, Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news. But what you realize is that's the dynamite of the gospel. That's the foundation and the center of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is not simply that God has given us a message, it's that God through that message is building his church. The good news is is that every tribe, tongue, and people will bow at the feet of that Jesus who died for our sins. The hope of the gospel is that it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? And sometimes in the middle of that, we can't see it. 
And so when we come and begin to ask the question, why is Paul writing to the Philippian church? When we listen to this prayer and we begin to see this effusive hope, this effusive joy, this deep, deep love for the Philippian Christians, you ask, what, what's the foundation of that kind of friendship and that kind of relationship? And, and we see it in two ways in this text. First, in Paul's praise, and second, in Paul's petition. So let me just show you what Paul's doing here. And this is, this is what he's doing. He's saying here that when we consider what we have experienced, you Philippians and myself, and as I pray every prayer, I am overwhelmed with joy and hope because the only explanation is God in the gospel. The only reason we're in this is God in the gospel. And that gives me enormous hope. And Paul can see the sovereign working of God in the gospel and grace in his relationship. So here's where we need to start this morning. Paul, as bad as it is, in prison, in the dark... I mean, remember he was singing with Silas in the dark, Acts chapter 16. Paul, in the middle of all of that, could see light, could see life, could see God at work. Paul knew and understood something that we need to get a grip on is that God was not simply sending his son and leaving us alone. The sovereign God was building the church and building what? The church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That's what he understood God was doing. And so the Philippian church is the work of God. And their relationship, their friendship, is a miracle of God. And so that's why he doesn't say, I thank you, Philippians, for your partnership in the gospel. He says, I thank God every time. Every time I think of you, every time I pray, stunning, stunning, stunning reality. Is that true right here? you're at home and you got believers with you, look around. Let's be real honest. Are they the smartest bunch? They just kind of better? Are they the cream of the crop? Right? Are they the people of God because of the power of your persuasion? Why are they the people of God? Why is there a church? Why has there why in the depths of the Congo when somebody couldn't see and lost all hope is there a church? Are there believers? It's this. God in the gospel made a promise from the history of the Bible is of a God covenanting God who is determined to have a people for himself from every tribe, tongue and nation. So here's a quote from John Stott. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. Do you understand this? 
for his purpose conceived in a past eternity being worked out in this history and to be perfected in future eternity is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness but rather to build his church that is to call out of the world a people for his own glory isn't that great for paul looking at the philippian church he is blown away by the god of the philippian church grateful for his sovereign purpose i'm going to break this down a little bit and show you what he prays here now, I called this in my note, I don't think this is particularly theologically sophisticated, but in my notes I called it, this is the joy of their crazy koinonia, right? Because that's how, it's, how it affects Paul. Paul's never lacking amazement. Paul is never lacking wonder. Every time he thinks, every time he prays, every time he considers, he thanks his God for them, for the partnership. The word partnership here, he uses it a few times in, in uh, Philippians. He'll use it other places. The word koinonia means simply to have something deeply in common. And the commonness they have is what? Their partnership in the gospel. That they are joined in the ministry of the gospel. For the Apostle Paul, that's stunning. It's stunning. It's a miracle. It's against everything in him. Paul will talk about it in Philippians chapter 3. He's the last to be in the gospel. And as he writes to the Philippian church, he says, do you remember in Acts 16 how you became part of the gospel? I, I encourage you, go read Acts chapter 16. I wrote in my notes, this is what Paul had. He had prayer, purple garments, right, and prison. The kind of summary of Acts chapter 16. Paul comes in to Philippi, and they knew somebody would be praying down by the river. There's a place of prayer. Some, so Paul goes down to pray. Is prayer a little thing? That's a powerful thing. When you start with prayer, where are you starting? You're starting with the promise and purpose of a God who saves people according to his own good pleasure, to the glory of his name. Paul goes down to pray. He meets Lydia who sells purple garments. And it says in that text of Scripture that the Lord opened up Lydia's heart to receive the message of Paul. <laughs> Isn't that great? Why would you preach the gospel to a woman down by the river? Why do you pray? Because the God who is sovereign over all has chosen a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and all he has to say is Lazarus come forth, Lydia come forth, rise up, come forth and all he has to do is breathe and they're born of the Spirit. Paul says he did it. He did it. Began with Lydia. Then he got thrown into prison for casting out a demon out of a, a young girl and he and Silas are singing away and, the, and an earthquake comes and the Philippian jailer thinks he's going to have to kill himself because of how serious it was to let them go and they cry out no we are still here and what is the Philippian jailer's response after hearing them sing what were they singing whatever they were singing preached the gospel they were singing the gospel because they said, what must I do to what? Be saved. 
And as he asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, what? The gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Maybe that's believe on the Lord. You know, Lily, that's your next one, right? Christ died for our sins, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he and all his household were overjoyed to receive Jesus Christ. That's a work of who? Let me just ask you this question. Have you lost your belief in that God? Cynicism comes in when we see things at the human level and we forget things at the sovereign level. The God who can open up hearts and turn people towards himself. So that's the joy of the Apostle Paul. Gospel certainty. He looks at the Philippian believers and he says, this was a work of God. This wasn't cleverness. This wasn't Silas and I strategizing. We did not strategize to get thrown into prison, just to tell you. We were fed up with this girl saying, these are the prophets of the Most High God. Shut up, Paul says. Knock it off everywhere we go. I don't need demons giving me my credentials, right? Out, he says. Prison, they said. Rise up, God said to the Philippian jailer. So it's the joy. This is clearly a work of God. You know what that means for Paul then secondly? If it's a work of God, it's a work that will get finished. This is where his confidence is. Because looking at the world, looking at corruption that he dealt with, looking at people falling and failing and turning away and criticizing him and arguing with one another, if he looked at all of that, he would say, we're never going to get this thing done. It's never going to be realized. It will not come to fruition. But he wasn't looking at the people. He was looking at their God. Isn't that a great verse, verse 6? Have you memorized this? Said it over and over again? Do you understand that this is Paul's joy? This is why he rejoices together with them. Not because he's looking at them and saying, this is good for you. He's looking at them and saying, thank God for all of us. Even though he knows it's true for them. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How long has God in on the project? To the very end. Who is he confident in? The Lord on their behalf. Isn't that great news? Let me come back to this praying and ask you, have you lost that confidence? Isn't it hard when you look at people to imagine the, fi- imagine the finished product? Parents? Spouses? Church members looking at your pastor? Spurgeon writes, where is there an instance of God beginning any work and leaving it incomplete? Isn't that a great line? Show me for once a world abandoned and thrown aside half-formed. Show me a universe cast off from the great potter's wheel with the design and outline, the clay half-hardened, and the form unshapely from incompleteness. Show me that. I read of a, a writer who was translating Dante's work out of Italian. There's been a few translations, but 
um, the, trans, the person who was teaching on this said she almost got it done but didn't finish it. Got most of it translated but didn't get all of it translated into English. It's not easy to translate into Italian into English when it's poetry and make it sound like poetry and be faithful to Don. It takes a lot of work. And, and, and she almost got it done, but she died before she finished it. My dear friends, Christ died and rose again so that he would finish everything that he started. And he will finish what he set out to do. And Paul has a little bit of confidence. Do you have this confidence? I am. Why is Paul able to see? Because he sees that God doesn't stop something he started. That God doesn't abandon something he begins. That I am confident. This is what gives him joy. And it gives him joy over the Philippian believers. This is what will give you joy over one another as Christians. Not that you see them finishing themselves. And what helps Paul is that imprisonment and Nero and persecution and hardship is not God leaving us to our own devices, but it's the potter turning the wheel in order to sanctify his people. Isn't that great news? That's the joy of gospel certainty, and this is the joy of God working clearly to finish it. But notice also what I want you to see at the end of his prayer as he prays that he says that it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of what? Of grace. So Paul's putting himself in there both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, I I just want you to hear what he says here in verse 8. For God is my witness. So he says that really strongly. He wants them to hear. I'm not being, I'm not just writing this letter so I can suck up to you, so you think I'm leaning in towards you in love. He says, God's my witness how I what? Yearn, long, ache for you with what? The affection of Christ. He's not saying that he's yearning for them and they're all yearning for Christ. He's saying that, you know this yearning that I have? It's not first my yearning. I, along with you, have experienced grace. Because the truth is, left to myself, I wouldn't love any of you. Doesn't say that, right? But that's what he's saying here. Where is the affection from? Whose affection? Right? He'll say this to them in terms of their love for one another at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit? Any what? Affection? The same affection of Christ? What, What he's saying here is, if you're in Christ you'll have affection. It's what Christ produces. Christ, when he lives in you, Christ, the hope of glory, he produces in you love that is not of you with his birth of his love. Ah, I thank God every time that I'm not some selfish, self-promoting, religious egotist. That's who I once was. It was all about me. 
and what everybody thought of me and everybody jumping when I said jump and me and my pride. But he said, now it's radically changed. He said, if there's any love, if there's any joy, if there's any unity, if there's any affection, if there's anything like that in Christ, what? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Not thinking of yourselves as more important than you ought to. Right? Do nothing out of pride. Right? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. But consider everyone else. Where is that coming from? He starts clearly. It comes from Jesus. That's what Jesus does. He joins us. And he doesn't join us by putting your name on the membership list of Waterbrook Church. And I'm saying we need to be committed in covenant, and we call it covenant partnership here, but we're covenanting as partners in the gospel because we've been partnered with Christ who's first made a new covenant with us. Christ is a covenanting Savior who binds himself in love and promises to finish his work that he started and finished on our behalf in Calvary to the praise of the glory of who? God. That's what's going on. So I want you to hear this. Joseph Lightfoot says the believer has no yearnings apart from his Lord. His pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. His heart throbs with the heart of Christ. That's the question I want to ask you this morning. Whose pulse is throbbing in your heart? I'll tell you, if you have cynicism, it's not the pulse of Jesus. Calvin says true love can flow, true love can flow from no other source than from the bowels of Christ. That agonizomai of Christ at Gethsemane, who loved and was faithful to God, but loved us in, in God's will and purpose, genuinely loved us. That's who is in Paul's heart. Is he in your heart? That's what we pray, because when he joins us together out of his love, it's a miracle. This kind of love, this kind of community, this kind of partnership is a miracle. You get it? This is how Philippians begins. That's what we're praying about, and that's what we're praying for, that God in the gospel is joining a people together. As Stott said, it is a new community. It's not a bunch of isolated Western individualists. I, God did not say, I will build a bunch of individuals. And the gates of hell will keep them from getting together. He said, I will build my church and hell won't stop me from putting them on each other's hearts, in each other's lives, together. Isn't that great news? Do you see that? Do you hope in that? So that's what he's praising God for really quickly. Let me show you what he's praying for. You can study this a little further. That, so what's, that's his uh, honest experience of what the gospel partnership is. This is his expectation. His, as he prays, he says, this is what I believe is going on in all the chaos, in all the darkness. I believe that God is going to use all of this to build his church and to prepare them for eternity. So that's what he prays. And so what do I pray that you'd love just a little bit? What's God building? His church. A church that is characterized by the love and the sacrifice and the devotion of Christ bound. And so what, what we need to see is that it's not, when we look at COVID, when we look at the culture, when we look at everything that's going wrong in the chaos, the Christian looks and says, but we know that God 
will finish what he starts. He will build his church. And so we have to look at it and say, something's going on here. And so when Paul prays for them, he says, I just pray that the suffering will give you greater opportunities for the serving. I pray that your love will abound and abound. You're going to see opportunities you've never had before to show the love of Christ. I have a little quote here, poem from, uh, from uh, Ella Willer Wilcox. It's a little part of it. She says, one ship sails east, one ship sails west, regardless of how the winds blow. It's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way we go. And uh, just think about that for a moment. I, I remember sailing out in San Diego Bay. I'm not a sailor. I, I'm like, you ever see the movie What About Bob? You know, where they strap him to the main, the main sail. <laughs> I'm a sailor. I'm sailing. That was me. But, you know, we were out there, and we came around the corner, and the wind was coming towards us. And I didn't, I'd never sailed before, and so they said, well, it's time to do some tacking the only tacking I had done is on the bulletin board before, so I didn't know what they were doing. No, what you do is you begin to what? Use the wind to go like this to get you to go right in the face of the wind to where you want to go. This is what God's doing in the, his imprisonment. This is what God's doing in the Roman environment. This is what he's doing with all the struggles going on. God is getting us to the goal that God intends for us. And so you got to look at the situation you're in, and I'm going to challenge you today as you're praying. When you're thinking through where you're at, what your circumstances are, where America is today, how are you going to look at this? Because it's not the wind that blows, but the way you set your sail that determines where you head. And so this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Do you see, do you pray, God make us love more than we've ever loved before? That's what he prays. Make our love abound. Secondly, I want the way I put it in my notes is let your priorities shift. Now look at what he says here in his prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he's not just saying I want you to be effusively loving to everybody and anybody in any way possible. What he's saying is I want your love to be characterized with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Here's what God's doing with his church. He's saying to you, so what are you living for? How many years you got left? Well, depends what COVID does. Depends what China does. Or North Korea does. Or America does. Right? You're looking at all of these things that seem so uncertain. He says, I pray that your love would abound with all knowledge and discernment so that you might approve what is excellent, what is worthy. This is a time of sorting out our priorities. God, let them see that they've been made for the gospel. They've been made for your kingdom. So... That's what we should be doing. Isn't, aren't people, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot more opportunities to share the gospel during the last little while. The world is going, what in the world's going on? And you and I need to stop and realize that this is a time to ask the question, are we still going to just keep living like we always lived? Because God just threw the brakes on. God shut it down. And the question for us is, 
So what should be valuable to us? And Paul says it in Philippians. He'll say it over again. He says it in this chapter. You know what? For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says it in chapter 3. I want to know Christ. And if it means COVID, then let it be COVID. Right? If it's suffering, let it be suffering. If it whatever it is, let me know Christ. Let me know the fellowship of His sufferings. And the power of his resurrection. I am in this so that I would everything, everything that is chaff would be burnt off and Jesus would be chief. Are you praying that prayer for one another? That's what friends pray for each other. God, deepen our love and sort out our priorities so that the things that matter most to us are the things that matter most to you. That's what we're praying. And finally... He says that their lives would be pure and pleasing. Listen to how he says this. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, there's a couple ways to preach this. You could say that what he's saying is that you stay anchored to Christ and you have the righteousness and blamelessness that comes from the gospel. The difficulty in this is that the word that's used here is not the common word used for blamelessness when it's around the gospel. So Gordon Fee says, this is not Paul's regular word for the idea of blameless. Aposkopos has to do with being blameless in the sense of not offending or causing someone to stumble. It's an interesting take, but I believe what he's saying here is that what God is doing right now is he's building his church and purifying his church in such a way that we will be prepared to be his people for eternity in glory, who know how to live, know how to love, know how to serve, know how to be selflessness. Friends, heaven is coming. Eternity is coming. Our eyes are to be set on that. And this is what's going on around us is not problematic if it's perfecting, if it's preparing. So Randy Alcorn commenting on this section of Scripture talks about Joseph Son. I, I met. Jo- I don't know if Joseph Son's still alive. He was a, a Romanian pastor. I met him se- quite a long time ago, and uh, and uh, who was um, under communism in Ro- in Romania, and then was there when it fell at the at the end of the 1980s, beginning in 1990. Uh, so Randy Alcorn writes: Joseph Son, who faced much evil in communist Romania, told me this world with all its evil is God's deliberate chosen environment for people to grow in their characters. The character and trustworthiness, listen to this, the character and trustworthiness we form here, we, we take with us there to heaven. Do you understand that? So this is not us doing time on earth. This is us getting ready for eternity. And so one of the ways we pray this prayer is say, God, get us ready for eternity. Form us into the likeness of Christ, because guess what we're going to be doing for eternity? Loving Jesus and loving one another as his bride for all eternity. Isn't that great news? And so the call here is that we would pray, and this is what Paul's hope is, God's doing it. 
these difficulties is God's getting us ready for eternity. God's making us a community that's going to have to learn how to forgive. We're going to have to learn how to forgive each other. We're going to have to learn how to die to ourselves. We're gonna, it's not a problem to go through problems if the problems show us what the problem is. Got that? Because I can't repeat it. It's not a problem if God brings problems so that he might show us what the real problems are. So we'll be free of those problems forever. He's making us holy. That's the good news. Paul doesn't see it as a problem. He sees it as the plan. He praises God that the plan is at work. It's been shown. He's building his church. And he prays to God, keep building. Are you praying that right now? Keep building. Keep building. Keep building. Keep building. The prayer for us is not primarily take away our troubles. It's give us the trust. Give us the trust. Let's pray together. So God, as we have begun our study of Philippians, thank you for the joy, the hope, the optimism of the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for his love for the, Corinth, uh, for the Philippian church. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your work of grace in him, for them, in them, for him. We pray that we might have that for each other. Come and build your church. We know the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do what you must do to bring all the nations and all our neighbors to know you. Do what you need to do in us so that we would say to live as Christ. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Father, bless your people as they go. Fill us with the joy, the hope, the confidence of the gospel. Give us the love of Christ, the affection of Christ in our hearts, and make us bright lights of hope, of a new day coming, a new people forming, a God who is worthy to be trusted. Bless us and help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you today. Have a great day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.